Preferred Shares is a podcast started by three guys interested in business, history, and business history. We follow our interests and go down the rabbit holes of current and bygone topics. We'll talk about individual companies, product wars, famous founders, forgotten failures, and anything else that strikes our fancy. To find our episodes and show notes, please visit our website at preferredsharespodcast.com. The hosts for the podcast are Devin Lassar, Douglas Ott, and Lawrence Hamptel. Devin is a private investor with a background in design and brand development and is the author of The Invariant Newsletter. Douglas is a founder and chief investment officer at Andvari Associates, a registered investment advisor. Lawrence is a co-founder and principal at Fortune Financial Advisors, also a registered advisor. All opinions expressed by the podcast hosts and guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective employers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Anvari and Fortune Financial may have positions in any of the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode seven of the Preferred Shares podcast. This week we have a very special episode. It was the brainchild of our co-host Lawrence Hamtill, and we are going to do a study on the wealth origins of the NFL team owners, both the original owners and the current set of owners, and discuss what we found how things have changed over time with what particular industries most of the owners were involved in versus today. And I'll also give some brief history of how the NFL came to be and how it evolved over the years. And then we're also going to talk about one or two of our most favorite teams that we did some research on. So I kind of had a sour attitude at first because I'm not a big sports fan, let alone a big football fan. So when Larry suggested this, I was didn't have a great attitude, but as I did some digging and research and reading, there's some fascinating history with all these different teams and their owners and their origin stories. So this is going to be a good episode, Lawrence. Yeah, I think one of the things that we we look at here on this podcast is business and history and, and how those two things sort of connect at various times. And the NFL has give or take a hundred plus years of history and the U S a hundred years ago looks quite different from an industry standpoint from how it looks today. And so how has that transformation economically, demographically, geographically, all those different things, how is that mirrored in the transformation of the league as far as the original teams, the original locations, the wealth, that founded them and and sort of sustained them until the league gained more popularity. And then the current ownership now, how did they come about owning these teams? And and how is that reflected or reflective, I should say, of the changes in the economy and so on? So it's it's kind of an interesting little history lesson, not just of the league, but but also perhaps of the United States as a whole over the last century or so. Absolutely. And To get us started off, I'm going to start reading from my NFL history script. All right, so the National Football League began as the American Professional Football Association, the APFA, which is kind of a mouthful, and it was founded in Canton, Ohio in 1920, so 103 years ago. 
The AF APFA changed its name to the NFL just two years later after its founding in 1922, and then would grow in popularity over the decades to become a true rival to baseball. And then starting in the late 1950s, there were a handful of wealthy men who wanted to buy new NFL franchises. And one of these men was Lamar Hunt. He was the son of the wealthy Texas oil man, H.L. Hunt. And the league owners and commissioners basically told them to take a hike. They denied them new franchises or, or paltry minority stakes in the current NFL team. So not willing to take no for an answer, Lamar led this group in starting their own league, the American Football League, the AFL, which they started in 1959. Now, competition between these two leagues got to be very intense during the 1960s. The AFL owners were generally wealthier than their NFL counterparts. Plus, the AFL had been able to secure a substantial TV contract for about $36 million. So the AFL started to wage a war for football talent. They poached talent from the NFL, and this is kind of a mind-boggling statistic. The AFL signed 75% of the NFL's first-round draft choices in 1960. That is a <laughs> huge poaching. So player contracts spiraled higher and higher for both leagues, and with so much money being thrown around by everyone, this couldn't go on for much longer. This is kind of similar to the golf situation today, right? Right. So both leagues would eventually come to a truce in 1966, and they essentially agreed to conduct a common draft and end the bidding war for players. And then the two leagues also planned for a championship game between their respective league champions. And this was the birth of the modern Super Bowl. Uh, the first Super Bowl took place in 1967 with the Green Bay Packers of the NFL defeating the Kansas City Chiefs of the AFL. Thus, the success of the early Super Bowls demonstrated the potential for a unified professional league. And then in 1970, the NFL and AFL officially merged, creating a single entity with two conferences, National Football Conference and the American Football Conference. And... That is kind of the brief history of the evolution of the league. And some of the interesting bits of trivia that I didn't had no idea about some of the differences between the AFL rules and regulations and the NFLs. You know, one was that the AFL simply added two more games to the regular season, making it a total of 14 rather than the NFL's 12. The NFL copied this a year later in 1961. The AFL introduced players' last names on the backs of jerseys. That was also adopted by the NFL, although 10 years later. And then another interesting difference was that the AFL had a slightly narrower and longer ball, which was easier to throw than the NFL ball. And so this, I think, made it for a more exciting game with more passing and more long bombs. And one, one final interesting difference was that the official time was on the scoreboard clock in the AFL rather than just the time being kept by the referees on the field. Well, and I would say one thing, too, that we kind of should mention is the NFL really sort of rose to the top of the sports hierarchy with the 1958 championship game between the Giants and the Colts. And one of the reasons was, I believe it was one of the first nationally televised football games and 
I think it's not a stretch to say that the rise of football coincided with the rise of television supplanting radio as the primary household entertainment system. We think of baseball as something that you played during the, the day for the most part. You listened to it on the radio while you were working. Not a lot of stadiums had lights. Football is the opposite. You play once a week. It's on TV. It's sort of like can't miss. You schedule your weekend around it. And that, I think, sort of coincided with the widespread adoption of television sets. And so that also mirrors the change in American society, how households entertain themselves And football is just broadly more conducive to viewing versus listening to on the radio. You want to see the spectacular plays, catches, runs, and so on. So it's it's just sort of uh, interesting to see how that didn't happen in a vacuum. It was it was happening alongside these subtle changes in in domestic life and so on. Good point. I need to find some data comparing viewership and revenue with the various sports leagues. All right, I found it. It says um, revenue from Super Bowl 52 surpassed $500 million in ad revenue, more than the NBA and MLB playoffs combined. Wow. And then another, another statistic is for total number of minutes watched during the various sports seasons. NFL is by far the most popular in terms of people watching. 975 billion minutes of football were watched in 2023. Compare that to second place Major League Baseball with 330 billion minutes watched. NBA is third with 285 billion minutes watched. And then NHL, 181 billion minutes watched during 2023. So NFL, in terms of minutes viewed by everyone, it's more than the other major sport leagues combined as well. We assume that gambling has a, a large influence on that. I mean, it's kind of hard kind of hard to gamble on individual games out of the World Series or the NBA Finals or something like that. Maybe you can bet on the winner, but the Super Bowl or any given game, you know, you just it seems a lot more conducive to gambling. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that has a large impact on the viewership and the side interest that people might have. Yeah, and I think also the fact that there is one championship game, there's not a series at the very end. And I think the fact that there are less games played in the regular season makes each game more impactful and meaningful. Right, um, yeah, it's a lot so, more dramatic. Yeah. So regardless of the differences, it's still the most popular sport, I think, without a doubt, in the U.S. So with that, let's get into talking about some of the individual teams and their respective owners and and what we found most interesting. Let's go with Lawrence first. Yeah, so I am in Kansas City. Uh, I am a Chiefs fan, but I'll be honest, my my first love are the Colts because I was a huge Peyton Manning fan growing up. So I sort of claim them ahead of anybody else. And their history is kind of fascinating. Originally, the Colts were in Baltimore. We had John Unitas as their quarterback, and they had a long history there of, of NFL championships and so on before the merger, and they went to the AFC. But what's interesting is this current Colts team, there were several different franchises that preceded them. They were sort of founded by a gentleman named uh, 
Carol Rosenblum, who his father had a denim company called Blue Ridge. They were making this denim apparel for workers, which was a big deal back in the 30s. And the company was almost going under. And during the Great Depression, Rosenblum got a contract with the Civilian Conservation Corps. And that huge order in 1933 sort of kept the company afloat. It's it's something that we've talked about in previous episodes, how government contracts can kind of come in and change the game for some of these companies. But that's just kind of an aside. Eventually, the company Blue Ridge got distribution through Sears Roebuck, JCPenney, and so on, and and went on to thrive. And then Rosenblum brought the Colts to Baltimore. I believe they were previously the uh, in Texas, and so they that became kind of his his primary stake as he kind of got out of other business concerns. And then in the I think it's the late '60s or early '70s. Robert Ursay took over the team. He had made his fortune in the kind of consolidating the heating and cooling industry in Chicago. And then he actually inherited the Los Angeles Rams. But that's a complicated story, not worth kind of going down the rabbit hole. But long story short, he traded his inheritance of the Rams for the Colts. And he kind of managed that team. And then eventually he got sort of disgruntled with Baltimore and that city's, I guess, in his mind, lack of support for the team. And he moved um, kind of as a surprise to Indianapolis in the early 80s. That's kind of an interesting story where this team kind of has its roots in the old economy, first in apparel, especially workers' apparel. And then in heating and cooling, so sort of traditional manufacturing and services. And then there's not much of a connection there now. The Ursay family still owns them. But as far as I know, they're kind of removed from their original dealings and and business. Gavin, you want to go next with your two? Yeah, to touch on uh, Lawrence's beloved Kansas City Chiefs, as well as the Buffalo Bills, Both teams were actually founded by Lamar Hunt, which Doug had referenced in the introduction. Lamar Hunt, undoubtedly one of the most influential people in football, largely responsible for turning it into the NFL as we know it today. He was credited for having coined the term the Super Bowl. As Doug mentioned, his fortune came from his father, H.L. Hunt, who wasn't just an oil man. He was one of the oil men. In the 1930s, he was able to speculate on oil leases and secured a huge percentage of the East Texas oil field. Ended up growing Hunt Oil and making him one of the richest people in the country. And one of the most fascinating side stories is in the late 70s, the three sons of HL, Lamar, Nelson, and William, came up with a bit of a scheme (laughs) They bought physical silver and futures contracts using their inheritance money with a strategy of creating a shortage to rapidly push up the price. And it worked, at least temporarily. Um, What is this scheme called in our investment vernacular? uh, Pump and dump. (laughs) I think it's the market. Cornering the market. market. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. So uh, between 1979 and 1980, the price of silver, I believe, uh, spot and comics jumped over 
700%. And uh, it was estimated that the brothers controlled about one third of the global supply that wasn't held by governments. Of course, not everybody was happy seeing what they were up to. And the exchange changed the rules regarding uh, leverage requirements on uh, January 7th of 1980. And of course, they had borrowed heavily to finance this huge speculative position. And it basically forced them to unwind their position. The price of silver collapsed. They needed basically a bank bailout to help them pay pay off these huge margin loans. And ultimately, they lost about $1.7 billion. That's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. But surprisingly, the, the entirety of the family's wealth wasn't crippled by this. The Harris, you know, sold off, eventually sold off their father's oil company. They have, I believe they still own a few other oil companies, a ton of real estate, other businesses, They're still worth billions. They still own the Kansas City Chiefs. And if I'm not mistaken, they also own a minority stake in an NBA team, the Chicago Bulls. I think it's fair to say that Lamar Hunt was a huge sports fan. I think he has also some interest in Major League Soccer, at least the Kansas City soccer team. I know next to nothing about Major League Soccer, but I think he was pretty set on pro sports as as a huge thing going forward, especially with the increasing adoption of television and American homes. And so he definitely was entrepreneurial in trying to start leagues and drive professional sports as a major industry in the U.S. This was probably the most interesting team and, and owner. You know, knowing just a little bit about the hunt family and their wealth origins. It took researching for this episode to put two and two together in my mind with a lot of things, you know, the Hunt oil fortune, realizing that Lamar Hunt was related to HL Hunt and then Devin reminding us again, oh yeah, there were these two Hunt brothers that tried to corner the silver market and they're all related and it's just, you know, things are clicking in my mind. Things are starting to make more and more sense. Yeah, just because we were researching some football history. Yeah, and now the Chiefs are going for their fourth Super Bowl title, which would give them one more Super Bowl than H.L. Hunt had wives. So, you know. H.L. <laughs> had three wives. A little bit of trivia there. Uh, also, in, in reading some more about Lamar, I read something online that, I don't know if it's true or not, but it is said that on his deathbed that he uttered the words, Go Chiefs right before he died. So that coincides with your findings that he was a sports fan. Yeah, I'll, I'll choose to believe that. <laughs> so anyways, thank you both. I'm going to start talking about the Cardinals and the Giants. So the Cardinals, which are, are now based in Arizona, they actually started off in Chicago. And they are the oldest continuously run professional football pr- franchise in the United States, as well as one of only two NFL charter member franchises still in operation since the founding of the league. The other one is the Bears of Chicago. So the cards originally started in Chicago and the owner of the cards franchise was also one of the co-founders of the AFPA, the NFL original league. And this guy's name was Chris O'Brien. O'Brien was born in 1881 and had no wealth to speak of. He was just a house painter and a plumber. But he still organized the Morgan Athletic Club in 1898, just as a 17-year-old, with the help of his brother. 
and this club team would eventually turn into the Chicago Cardinals. But another interesting part of the story is that this might not have become, or the team might not have become part of the AFPA and the NFL. In 1920, just as the NFL was prepping for its first year, there was another local football team in Chicago called the Tigers that were also competing for the same audience. Now, the owners of these two teams agreed to play a match that would decide who would represent Chicago in the new football league. The winner would remain Chicago's sole team and the loser would just fold up and the cards win the match six to three. And thus, they became part of the NFL. So anyways, O'Brien would eventually sell the Cardinals in 1929 after running the club for 28 years, and he sold to a local doctor for $25,000, which is about $445,000 in today's dollars, which is far, far below what teams are worth nowadays, which are in the billions of value. Another interesting statistic, the annualized rate of return from that 1929 purchase of the cards to today's estimated value of $3.8 billion would be about 13.4% annualized over almost 100 years, which is pretty good. Next team is the Giants, and I picked the Giants because it's a great founding origin story. The founding franchise owner is a guy by the name of Timothy Mara. He was the son of an Irish policeman and was born into poverty in New York City's Lower East Side. At the age of 15, his father died, so he quit school to find work to support his mother. And his first job was as an usher in a theater, and then he worked as a newsboy selling newspapers on the streets. And this is where that brought him into contact with many of New York's bookmakers, or bookies as they are called. He soon became a runner for these bookies and was earning 5% of the bets he was collecting and receiving also tips from winners when he delivered their cash. So by the age of 18, he was an established bookmaker himself and he was taking bets from some of the wealthiest and most elite families of New York, like the Astors and the Whitneys. So fast forward a few more years, by 1925, the NFL was just five years into its existence and it needed teams in larger cities. New York was one of their target cities. And at the time, Morrow was 38 years old and had become very successful in multiple businesses and happened by chance to be in the room where his boxing promoter friend was being offered the franchise for New York. His friend turned it down and Mara seized the opportunity instead. And Mara just paid $500 for the New York franchise, about $8,700 in today's money. Not bad. (laughs) Well, it gets even better. Mara knew nothing about football, but thought that any franchise in New York ought to be worth $500. But he did have friends and, and connections that did know about football. He put them to work operating the franchise, and it was a long slug to get to profitability for the New York Giants, but it eventually did happen. Using that $500 figure in 1925, the annualized return on that investment would be about 18.2% annualized. Not bad. Also not bad. Anyways, those, those are my two teams. I know we kind of went out of order. We were supposed to talk about our broad findings of all 32 teams. So let's go ahead and do that now. 
what did we find starting with the original owner, Wealth Origins? Well, Devin put together some very nice graphics, which you'll be able to find in the show notes. And a quick takeaway is that broadly speaking, you have, as you probably wouldn't be surprised, a lot of quote unquote old old economy type industries that were the growth engines of the original owner's wealth. Uh, Things like oil and gas was around 19%, consumer goods and services, 25%, (laughs) gambling, (laughs) 6.3%, media and advertising, 12.5%, manufacturing. So it's not surprising that that was sort of broadly reflective of American society over, I don't know, the the early part to the middle part of the 20th century. Now you see a lot more inherited wealth, obviously, where I think it's safe to say that the owners are broadly disconnected from their progenitors, original companies and so on. But you look at oil and gas as a much smaller share, finance as a much larger share, technology as a, a wholly new category. Devin, how did you classify real estate? That looks like, I mean, it could be all commercial and residential yeah, all different I, kinds I, of real estate. Yeah, I just lumped them together. I, I, I thought that one thing that was particularly interesting when looking at the franchise owners, the original owners versus current owners, when you look at oil and gas and real estate together, the for the original owners, those two categories together were about 28% uh, of all franchises. And when you look at current owners, that percentage is 25%. But when you add in two of the inherited teams where the original origin was oil and gas, that number actually gets pushed up to about 31%. I mean, it seems like oil and gas and real estate, really not much has changed in terms of uh, their impact on on wealth and being represented in NFL franchise ownership. I think it's worth pointing out too that if you, we also put together some statistics on the value of the various franchises and the Cowboys are at the top with a, I think a value of around $9 billion. The Bengals and the Lions are, are towards the bottom of the list with a valuation somewhere around three and a half billion each. And I think that's somewhat also representative of the changing fortunes of the various regions in the U.S. I mean, around the end of World War II, Cincinnati, Detroit, those areas of the country were much wealthier. We had a much bigger industrial base, a a huge focus there in those parts of the country. And population has been trending down over the last several decades, whereas Dallas has been growing. So I'm not sure that it's a perfect fit relationship, but if you were to draw a best fit line between the appreciation of those franchises and the growth in their respective metro areas, you would find a pretty tight correlation. That's got to be the primary factor in the team's value. More more fans. ad revenues, more fans, it means you're a more valuable team, all else equal. Right. And then you throw in some of the variables as far as championships, like the Packers. I mean, Green Bay is not a huge market, but they're very marketable because they've had a lot of success. And they're one of the original NFL teams and original champions of the Super Bowl. So there's some outliers. But yeah, broadly speaking, I think that that's fair to say. Going back to the distribution of 
ownership wealth, I thought one thing that was very interesting is approximately one third of ownership of NFL franchises is all inherited. That, that definitely surprised me in terms of a percentage of overall franchises. Yes, they've been doing a good job of keeping it in the family, so to speak, and a lot of continuity, which... I don't know if that's, we haven't crunched the numbers on baseball and the NBA, but I almost want to say just after a cursory review that there's probably more inherited teams in the NFL than the other leagues. I'm not quite sure what would explain that, but that just, it just seems to be the case just on the face of it. Yeah, I'm going to have to dig into those numbers and create some more graphics. Got to figure it out. I think you can speculate a little bit on the future of the league. There's some teams like the Raiders that have moved around from Oakland to L.A., back to Oakland, and now Las Vegas. The Rams have been in Los Angeles and then St. Louis, and now they're back in L.A. I would be curious to know what you guys think about other teams that might be somewhat on the list of possible moves It's been a while since you've seen new teams enter the league. I think the Houston Texans might be the most recent addition to the league. There might be some other cities that that think of themselves as worthy of a franchise. So what cities do you think might be eligible for a team in the not-too-distant future? Are you trying to stump us, out us as not knowing much about football? No, I know. I mean, I, I think there's always a balance between preserving the quality of the content so you don't necessarily want to dilute the product. But right. at the same time, you want to expand it carefully, but but expand it nonetheless. And Yeah, it seems best to take a measured approach with whatever you're doing, especially when it comes to these franchises that are potentially worth multi-billion dollars. So Lawrence's comment about the value of the team having a correlation with the growth of a region. The next franchise is obviously going into be whatever region has been growing more rapidly. And I think that's probably in the Southeast region. Yeah, I was going to say the Eastern part of the Sun Belt, somewhere around there. What city is available? I don't think South Carolina has a team, but Atlanta already has a team. Yeah, the Charlotte has a team. And there's how many Florida teams are there? The Dolphins and the Bucks. Two. Yeah, and they've got a fair amount of NBA as well there. I don't know. It's probably close to saturated as far as like the major or the obvious markets go. You got to think like Oklahoma City, is that a big enough city to have just the NBA or could it have another pro sports franchise or Salt Lake City? Salt Lake City is growing, but it already has the Utah Jazz. Can they sustain another pro sports franchise? I don't know. I mean, maybe it is already at the perfect balance and maybe you'll see some other teams and smaller markets move away where the fan base just isn't there to support them. I know there's been some Some rumors that the Buffalo Bills might go to Toronto or something like that. It's hard to imagine something like that happening, but I suppose it's always possible. But maybe that's what the future is, is that you just have a little bit of change on the margin, but not huge shifts from one side of the country to the other. Well, that's an interesting point. The MLB has one or two teams based in Canada. Is that correct? Or used to be two. Now it's just the Blue Jays. Yeah, and NBA had to. They had the Vancouver Grizzlies, and then they had the Raptors, but the Grizzlies moved to Memphis. Would it be conceivable for any American sport league to expand into another foreign country that's outside of North America? Like, go into China or Asia. 
for with an NBA team. The main market where all of the money's made is in the US. You've got those really huge hurdles of time zone constraints and you would probably have exhibition games, but a actual sustainable league presence, I think, is iffy. Mexico City, maybe, just because of the population there. It's so huge. It's not too far away. It's easily accessible by flight. It's in more or less the Western or the Pacific time zone, I think, or mountain time zone. I forget which. So maybe that's a long shot, but I, I think before the league goes east, it might go south, if that makes sense. I, I yeah. think it's it's one thing to have teams fly halfway across the country for a game. It's another to go halfway around the world, too. It might yeah. be tough. Has the NFL ever had an exhibition game in Japan? I know they've had college games, exhibition games in Japan. And, of course, they've experimented with these games in Germany and London and so on. But I don't know. I mean, we'd have to see if they've released the economic results of that, if what was the interest like versus what they expected. I think there was a NFL-type league or American Football League in Europe that may have folded. At the same time, I mean, a couple, a couple games were played in Europe this year, right? By the NFL. So raising awareness, not not that they would actually plant a flag over there. But it seems more of a marketing exercise rather than something to be right. Trying to broaden the marginal fan base a little bit. Yeah, it's it's yeah. After thinking about it, it's it makes most sense to focus on the largest advertising market in the world. It's kind of interesting that baseball and basketball which are american sports i guess the canadians might take issue with me claiming baseball for america but that aside they have reached much wider international popularity than american football why that might be the case i don't know rugby is a similar sport to football it's popular in the old british dominions so maybe maybe that's they're just not room enough for two similar sports like that I have to wonder also the specialized equipment, the pads, the helmets that does require a significant investment. That's probably going to be a a barrier for a lot of countries to adopt it just based on disposable income. Yeah, less GDP per capita would be a larger barrier. So you need simple or rather no equipment to play a sport. Right, like basketball. Or baseball, you just need a stick and a ball or something to hit. You know, they play stick ball in the streets, so. To your comment about whether there's room in countries outside the U.S. for the popular American sports, I think that goes back to our episode on Mars where these different types of candy bars that have already established a foothold can't be replaced with a similar, even better tasting candy bar. Right. Once you're there and you achieve critical mass, there is little that can be done to replace you. That's true. Yeah. And you look at Canada. I mean, it's the the obvious choice, but they've got the CFL, which I think is still pretty popular. It's never going to achieve the same status as hockey in Canada, I don't think. But the CFLs had a reasonable degree of success, I believe. So there's some possibilities in, in some countries where maybe junior leagues might be established. But I guess maybe 
to come full circle to answer your question, Doug, or maybe it's my own question, I guess. That could be the future is where you have these sort of satellite leagues that might play a few games, a smaller schedule in different regions, and then see how the fans take to that. And maybe eventually they'll play exhibition games against the NFL teams. I don't know. But that's one possible path that the future could take. Yeah, there's clear opportunity or at least willingness to test. So yeah, it looks like five games were played in Europe in 2023, three in London, two in Germany. If you go back, there was the NFL Europe, the World League of American Football, World League, NFL Europe League. You know, they've been trying to make it work outside the U.S. and at least putting on basically exhibition games and trials to to see how it works outside the U.S. Who knows? Maybe it catches on and they can start to build some of that critical mass that you mentioned. One last thing I guess we should probably mention is with the concerns now for head injuries, do you think that the future of the NFL is as bright as its recent history has been? Do you see any concern that fans might drift away from it given the the safety concerns? No. (laughs) (laughs) I think Devin's right. I think the rules have been modified slightly. New protective equipment has been introduced. New protocols for concussions. New protocols. And as long as they can keep it from getting more dangerous or less safe and still able to maintain the excitement, I think it will continue to do fine. That dovetails into one of the last topics I wanted to discuss is whether or not ownership of an NFL team is a good investment going forward. I've cited some historical annualized return figures for the two teams that I looked at. I've looked at some other teams as well. It seems like the returns have ranged from low double digits into high teens for very long periods of time with all of us being investors in the public markets. Those NFL return figures are without volatility. You don't have a publicly quoted share price for your ownership. Uh, which Yeah, lack of volatility, also lack of liquidity. <laughs> That might be the only downside. I mean, it's good and bad. I mean, a lot of this, like we said, about one third of teams were inherited. I mean, a lot of this appears to be permanent capital, so to speak, where there is not an interest in selling. And a a lot of the sales in the last few decades were kind of forced sales when families kind of fell on hard times, right? So I think long term, as Lawrence touched on, it comes down to how well, not just how well your team is managed, but also the demographics surrounding the fan and viewership base supporting the team. It's an interesting question and we can kind of observe in real time how it's not so clean cut because you look at David Tepper, a genius investor by any qualifications you might make, very successful hedge fund manager, current owner of the Carolina Panthers, has not quite achieved the same level of success on the field as he has with his portfolios. (laughs) Seems like he's a high turnover guy with coaching and so on. And it might be a good investment overall, but it definitely requires the right mindset. You've got to have the right culture, be in it for the long term. It really does require a a long-term mindset to be patient, have a success in that market. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a good investment, but the investment is sort of only as good as how you manage it, right? That's kind of 
one thing that I think you have to keep in mind is that it's probably a good investment overall, but you really have to approach it with the right mindset and the kind of commitment that you're making in time and money for that to pay off, to put a quality product on the field. Yeah, well, it sounds like an investment that you can't let a ham sandwich run and be in charge of. No, you have to have a high level of continuity, let your players develop, learn the league, move from college to professional, different speeds of the game and so on. So that might be one reason why, and I don't have the statistics to back it up, but I would guess that the teams that have been inherited probably have had a higher level of success on the margin just because there's more continuity and ownership. It seems like teams, when there's always questions about who's going to own them, what kind of payroll commitments they'll make and so on, they're always kind of struggling so that's that's the factor in there as well that feels right to me i think you can generally say the same thing about who is running and who also owns publicly traded companies family ownership uh either majority or or families that have still significant stakes i mean we can look at there's quite a few in europe i mean LVMH and and so on, where they, uh, Estee Lauder has another big family commitment here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a few that, that have uh, continued ownership from the founders' families, or the founders and the families. Walmart would be another one. Yeah, I think there's something to be said. It, could, it might be undervalued how stability and continuity can positively benefit an organization over the long run. Yeah, I think isn't that one of Tom Rousseau's major principles is the capacity to suffer as it relates to family businesses. And that's not always perfect, but I think it's a reasonable conclusion to draw. Just Yeah, I think that statement works most of the time. Not all the time, but I think most of the time it sounds right. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to preferredsharespodcast.com. On the site, there's a full list of resources and additional data for you to dig into. And on the site, you can subscribe to the podcast directly so all future episodes land directly in your inbox. If you want to support Preferred Shares, the single most helpful thing you can do is to spread the word. Share Preferred Shares with others who love business history as much as you and we do. 